Pastor Xavier was just here. You just missed him. Um, uh, he is recovering nicely from his surgery and uh, is feeling fine. His eye is doing really good. And unfortunately, his uh, eyeglass prescriptions changed pretty dramatically from cataract surgery. So he's having a little bit of a difficult time reading Still, so he's going in to see the uh, optometrist, ophthalmologist on Monday, tomorrow, and get that taken care of. I'm sure he'll be back here shortly this coming week. We're going to be in the Gospel of John chapter 16 today. If you have a Bible, John chapter 16, and uh, we're going to talk about seeing the Scripture. Let's uh, take a moment and come before the Lord and ask for his blessing. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus this morning, and we want to thank you for the day you've given us, Lord, just the opportunity to be with you, and Lord, to seek, Lord, the ministry of, Father, your purpose in our lives. Father, whatever that means, Lord, we want to understand where we are in terms of our relationship with you. Lord, we want to be able to grasp in the Scripture, in the Word of God, Lord, what you've intended for us, that we might be your ambassadors, Father, that we might be your servants. And, Lord, instead of serving ourselves, that, Lord, we would honor you and serve you in these last days. And, Lord, the opportunity you've set before us. We're, we're grateful we lift up the church around the world. Protect your people, Father. Encourage the hearts of those who are in hardship. And, Father, reveal yourself, Lord, to us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Gospel of John. Gospel of John was written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. That would be the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the son of Thunder. I think I would put that on my business cards if I was him. Um, I don't know if they had business cards in the first century. Sometime in the early to middle part of the um, 90s in the first century. Liberal scholars, the ever-popular liberal scholars, would like to push that date into the early part of the second century, intending to make the case that the gospel is the product of John's disciples and therefore not an account of an eyewitness. Liberal scholars cannot bear the thought that the New Testament is the product of eyewitnesses, especially not the product of eyewitnesses who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. kind of takes some of the ammunition away from there, trying to depreciate the value of the scripture. With a date somewhere in the early, early to mid-90s, we see that it has been written about 20 years following the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, 30 to 40 years after the other three gospels. John's gospel is unique in that the other three gospels are called synoptic gospels. What does that mean? Basically, they're intended as a condensed version of the life and ministry of Jesus, a synopsis of the life of Jesus, therefore synoptic gospel. It's interesting that if you look at a harmony of the gospels, harmony of the gospels is like a chart, sort of, with a lot of words on it, where you can see all of the different activities of the life of Jesus placed on a chart chronologically from his birth to the resurrection all the way down. And they place them, and then you'll have four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get to see what happens when in what gospel. You see how everything 
uh, matches up. Real valuable. There's a really good one, actually, if you go online on Blue Letter Bible. It's pretty useful. Uh, John, if you, it's interesting if you look at that, you see pretty quickly that John wrote the majority of his gospel about issues that were not addressed at all in the other three gospels. Now, some people want to question the authority of his account on that basis, probably the same people who would like to see the date of its writing in the second century. Uh, but the probability is that John read the other three Gospels, saw no need to repeat the things that they dealt with, and at the same time recognized that there are a great many other things that Jesus didn't spoke about that needed to be addressed. And so the Holy Spirit led John to pen the account that we have here. And I'm so glad for it. I mean, there are it addresses the deity of Christ like no other gospel. The deity of Christ is present in the other gospels. In fact, there is nothing in the gospel of John that's not present in the other gospels theologically, but the emphasis and the perspective is different. John feels the need to start his gospel in eternity past. He covers more material around the time of Jesus' baptism than anywhere else in the gospels. He doesn't really deal with Christ's birth at all. And some people have speculated that Jesus' mother may still have been alive at the time, and John didn't write that out to save her concern or embarrassment or whatever. But we don't really know that for sure, honestly. Most of the Gospel of John takes place in the area of Jerusalem in Judea, in southern Israel, very little in Galilee. And he addresses Jesus' time in Samaria. He talks about a, a number of different miracles that are not listed in the other three Gospels. He also deals with different aspects of Christ appearing to the apostles after the resurrection. In Jerusalem, also in Galilee. The largest single section that John deals with that is not addressed in any other Gospel, and what we're going to really be talking about this morning, takes place during the night of Christ's betrayal. It has to do with uh, Jesus' significant conversation with the apostles before the time that he is arrested, uh, from John chapter 14 all the way through the end of chapter 17, which is for the most part, this is all the voice of Jesus instructing and encouraging the apostles. And of course, John chapter 17 is Jesus speaking to the Father in prayer. Today, we're going to look at the section of Scripture right in the middle of that whole thing, in chapter 16. As Jesus and the apostles have, by the beginning of chapter 16, they have left the location of the Passover celebration, the Last Supper, at the end of chapter 14 they've left there, and they are making their way from the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, down through the little Kidron Valley on the east side of the city, and they are they actually cross the brook Kidron at the bottom of that valley at the beginning of chapter 18. So they're making this trek, leaving the city at night, in the evening, in the dark, walking through the city and leaving as Jesus is sharing this information with these guys. You know, reading the Bible is very, very different than reading other books. In fact, from my perspective, reading the Bible is so different, I almost hesitate to call it reading at all. I mean, it is. But when I read the scripture, what am I doing? What am I actually doing? And the answer for me, I am being attentive to the Lord to seek his wisdom, his knowledge, his understanding, and his insight to apply those issues into my life situation 
And from that to receive in myself and in my life the fulfilling of his plan for me and also at the same time his benefit for those people who are around me. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And how does that work? How does that work proceed? Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Important. So important for us, folks. What I would like to do today is I want to look at the situation of Jesus and these 11 apostles. Judas Iscariot is peeled off from the group by now. He's doing his dirty work. And there actually could be a couple of other people there. Maybe John Mark, the, the author of the Gospel of Mark, may have been with them this night. There may be a couple of other disciples there with them. But as we examine this account, how the Holy Spirit has given us to talk about how God uses the Scripture in our lives specifically. First of all, in, in the Gospel of John here, chapter 16, verses 1 through 6, seeing the Scripture and how that addresses the situation of your life directly and intimately with real compassion. If you have walked with Jesus, if you've had a relationship with Jesus Christ for any length of time, you know that the Word of God addresses your life intimately and with compassion. Sometimes it seems that whenever you open the Scripture, it just jumps to life right in front of you. It'll speak to you directly and powerfully about some issue that you're dealing with. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. Jesus speaking. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But... Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Jesus is in the middle of preparing these men to deal with what they would probably describe as the greatest catastrophe of their lives. The worst day of their entire lives. The fact that he is going to be arrested... And executed. And they're going to see this. They're going to, they're going to see graphically the situation transpire before them. He says in 16.1, these things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. And what are they doing while he's talking to them? They're walking in the dark out of the city. Just think that's interesting. I'm telling you these things so you won't stumble. Which of course they, they might. But it, just like Jesus to, uh, give an alternative application for the things that he says. He likes to do that. It's interesting. The way that this chapter is set in the scripture. I mean, we understand that the chapters and the verses in the Bible are not necessarily inspired. There's some places that chapter divisions 
are off a little bit, paragraph breaks somewhere else. That's, that's reasonable. That actually happens. The chapter divisions in the Bible were not around until the beginning part of the 13th century. The Old Testament Hebrew was divided into verses in the middle of the 15th century. And in the New Testament, latecomers, we didn't get verses until the middle of the 16th century. Still, even though the chapter and verses are not really inspired, it doesn't mean the Lord didn't know where they were or where the divisions would fall. I mean, he knew, I think sometimes about Jesus talking to disciples in the morning. What are we doing today, Lord? Well, I was thinking like John 16, about 25. What? Never mind. Um, of course, I know he probably didn't do that. You know, John would have said something anyway. But the reality is this chapter starts and begins with an exhortation, with an encouragement. He gives us a reason for the chapter. 16.1, these things I've spoken to you that you should not stumble. The very end, 16.33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. The wor- in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's not a small thing. And one of the things it shows is how important it is to Jesus that his people not stumble and be devastated, not lose hope in this situation. It's very important to him that they have peace and that these are not optional things. The Lord is deeply and personally concerned about these issues. And really, part of our problem is that we have this tendency to look at the Lord through human eyes. We imagine God's attitude being something like ours. That we, you know, our attitude is similar to his, and nothing could be farther than the truth. It really, God's attitude has no resemblance to our attitudes in many situations. Let me give you an example. I, I walk in the house, I notice my wife's kind of upset. She's sitting in the kitchen. She's kind of sniffling a little bit and wiping her nose and obviously upset about something. And I think in my mind, I should just go over there, I should just put my arm around her, and I should just stand there with her and be quiet and not say a thing. That's what I should really do. And so I walk into the kitchen, and I turn towards her, and I say, what's the problem? Come on, get it together. You can handle this. Bad idea. bunch of guys out there sitting there, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That's what I do too. That's the best thing, right? Ask your wife what the problem with that is. She'll explain it to you later. I look at people in difficulty, and I have a tendency to depreciate their difficulty. People have a problem that I can handle easily, or I can see the resolution to, or in two weeks it's going to be fine. I'm like, what's the matter with you? Get it together. God never does that. He always sees the answer. There is never a situation that you and I don't go through difficulty or these apostles leaving the city, the hardship they're faced with. He knows exactly what the outcome is going to be, but he never depreciates the struggle that they're dealing with. He never looks at it and says, well, that's no big deal. Never. God is always right there with us, encouraging and strengthening us. Jesus warns us of the things to come, things that otherwise would surely destroy our confidence in the truth. In verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God's service. Now, this, for me, sounds a little bit too much like current events, unfortunately, because it is happening. We are the sworn enemies of the prince of the power of the air, the one who controls the powers of this world. First John chapter 5 says, all the world lies in the hand of the evil one. Should we expect otherwise in this world? 
He tells us what they will do. Every one of these 11 men, folks, are going to suffer a violent persecution and die under violence because of their faith in Christ. The only exception is the writer of this gospel, John, will die in Ephesus of natural causes, but not because they didn't try. They boiled him in oil. They tried every which way they could to kill him, but God had a work for him to continue. Today, this day, right now, as you and I are sitting here, or you're sitting, I'm standing, people People are dying and suffering because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus. Right now, in, in multiple places, in places in the world that we don't know about, people are losing their lives. They are dying. They're going to be forever in this world, separated from their children and their families, because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus. And you and I need to be aware of that. Who does those kinds of things? Who murders children because they come from... Christian families, men like Saul of Tarsus, people, religious people, claim to be religious, and the reality is their works reveal who they they truly are. Jesus tells us why they do it. And then he tells them, the disciples, why he told them. He says in verse 4, These things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? Why don't they ask? Verse 6, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Folks, everything that we need has been supplied to us by the Lord. Tools, the know-how, opportunity. Everything that you need, For this day today, God has set in your hands, has placed in your ability to use. Now, whether you've taken advantage of it or not, that is an entirely different matter. But he has given you everything that you need to navigate this day. Now, for tomorrow, that's a different story. You need to get through today before you can do tomorrow. All that is left for us is to trust him and to follow his instruction, to trust and obey and they needed, they need this understanding, these men, because he will not be there to remind them for the three and a half days that he is gone. Three days. As soon as he said that in verse 5, now I go away to him who sent me, I am afraid that they heard little else of what he says. Notice, again, does he look down on their sorrow? Even though he knows it's, it's going to be just fine, he knows that they're going to be fine, that they have nothing to worry about, he's still right there with them every step of the way to encourage and to strengthen them and to hold them up. And the question again for us, do we do that for others? What about family and loved ones? We like to do that for strangers. You notice how far you're willing to go out of your way for strangers? What's up with that? Why will you do things for strangers that, you know, if your wife asks, you'd say, what? Do it yourself. Really, though, but if some stranger person you never met before, I need your help. Oh, sure. Wait, anything. God help us. We have problems. We got issues. The people that Jesus died for, our friends, our loved ones, people, has, God has not placed us with these people for no reason. There's a purpose that they are in our lives. We had better be aware and address ourselves to the purpose. The scripture addresses the situation in your life directly. 
and intimately, with a real compassion, just as we see the words of Christ address the lives of these 11 men. Look at verses 7 through 15. Seeing the scripture here, while being the inerrant and infallible record of God's purpose, is at the same time, it is a systematic checklist for our greatest possible benefit. Now, that doesn't mean that it is the plan we feel like following, okay? Or the prescription that we really want to take. If medicine was what we really wanted, they'd call it candy. It's medicine. That's why it tastes like that. And sometimes, like the apostles here in chapter 16, it is the thing that we want least in the whole world that Christ is working in our lives. It may be the thing that we want least, but it's probably the thing that we need most. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paracletus, the the helper that comes alongside, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you of things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. For all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus tells them, it is to your advantage that I go away. I absolutely guarantee you that if the apostles got to choose between Jesus staying with them and the Holy Spirit, this helper coming to convict the world, they are going with Jesus. No, no, no doubt in my mind it would be unanimous. In fact, I dare to say that there is no scenario where they don't choose Jesus with them over any other option. And I I get that. I understand. They know Jesus. He's a known quantity. They know who he is. They are confident in him. You know, human nature kind of dictates. We're we're a little bit funny about such things. Uh, In my mind, what I have is just okay. I mean, it's problems, but hey, what are you going to do? Until somebody comes along and tells you, oh, say, sorry, you can't have that any longer. What? What do you mean? What do you mean I can't have that any longer? Well, you know, you complain about it all the time. Well, that may be, but it's all I have. Uh, I mean, it's what I'm comfortable with. Well, sorry, it's gone. They say that God loves us, you know. And he does. He does. We are in the middle of a war, folks. A real war. We don't see it. We don't see buildings blown up and carnage on the street every day just on the news and on the Internet. But we're in the middle of a real war. And God's plan going forward for me, he has a plan to get me out of my comfort zone. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life, that God is trying to nudge you gently out of your comfort zone. 
Personally, I like being comfortable. It's, it's kind of my favorite thing. It's really what I want, really. Do you want to be comfortable or do you want to walk with Jesus? Because you really cannot do both. You can't. You can pretend. You can play this little game in your head where you tell yourself you're walking with Jesus while you're being comfortable. But sooner or later, you're going to run into Luke 9.23. It says, he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And you're not going to fit that into your comfort zone. You're really not. And that is his design because he is in this process of changing us from the inside out. It is a necessary evil. Just as Jesus going to the cross is evil. No argument. Jesus going to the cross is evil, but it is also necessary. Absolutely necessary. Just as the coming of the Holy Spirit is absolutely necessary. Verse 8, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. And of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. The work of the Spirit is conviction. Conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment. He says, of sin because they do not believe in me. The bottom line to all sin in this world today is the failure of men and women to embrace the death of Christ on the cross as providing a sacrifice for the Father on our behalf. God is inclined dramatically and irrevocably inclined to forgive the sins of the world. Of every human being. Hell was created for Satan and his angels. Not for you. Not for people. Not for any person. And yet people refuse. To allow that sacrifice to cover their lives. To embrace that truth. He says of righteousness because I go to my father. You see me no more in verse 10. What does this mean? Because we see him no more. Christ folks is the unique expression of righteousness. How do you and I know righteousness in human terms? Jesus Christ. That's it. Who is that other person that was really righteous? That was really good? Selflessly? And yeah, there wasn't one. There wasn't. Nobody else. The person of Jesus Christ is the lone sentinel of human righteousness to ever exist. And as his... He leaves this world. The Holy Spirit convicts people, men and women, because of the witness of who he is. He bears that unquestionable witness to our depravity in contrast to his sinless life. And finally, of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. You know, folks, deep down inside, people really know that this present world is being judged. People know that. They... You ever wonder why there are so many end-of-the-world apocalyptic movies out there? All the time, every five minutes, there's some new end-of-the-world movie. Oh, no. People know. They know in their heart of hearts. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to think about it. They'd rather talk about Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift and all the other really fun things in the world that are really so cool. Have you seen those pants? But the reality of it, they know. They know in their heart of hearts. Even folks... Even the Muslims know and are expecting a cataclysmic meltdown to this world system. They're just a little bit confused on some of the details. But 
this verse is really a reference to a specific person who is being judged. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says, And you he made alive, Christ made you alive, who were dead in sins and trespasses, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 5, 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You know, words have a hypnotic effect on people. If somebody will talk long enough about a subject, they may be able to convince you. And when you ask, how are you convinced? You might say, I don't really know. But it, I'm, I'm sure. I'm convinced. You know, this happens on college campuses all the time. People stand up in front of you and they have names, letters after their name. And they make uh, profound uh, defenses of interesting ideas. And young people who come in seeking to learn, yeah, they learn all right. All kinds of fascinating stuff. And some of it is not even true, unfortunately. A lot of great things to be learned on a college campus. Granted, education is a wonderful thing. God help you and protect you on behalf of the truth. Sometimes you hear people question, you know, the ability of Jesus as a teacher. And you do hear this from time to time. It's Now, you know, Jesus didn't even write any of the books. It's all written by those other, it was those fishermen, you know, they made all this stuff up. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Those fishermen are known for their rare theological insight. Yeah, that's what I thought. You hear Christians sometimes amazed, you know, a speaker, a teacher teaching a Bible study, and he doesn't happen to have any notes. They go, yeah, did you see that? No notes. Wow. Amazing. Very impressed, you know. Keep in mind here, Jesus is throwing this stuff out at the 11 apostles as they're walking through the city in the dark. He's just, you know, off the top of his head, whatever happens to come to mind. Look at verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Why can't they bear these things now? Because I think the only thing that they've heard in the last half hour is, I go away to him who sent me. And that is just buzzing a hole in the top of their heads. And everything else is kind of going right by them. Fortunately, the spirit of truth who leads us into all truth, not to mention reminding us of these things, will remind the Apostle John of these things that Jesus said. Notice, this helper, the spirit of truth, that happens to be male in gender, also called the Spirit of Christ, Romans 8, 9, Philippians 1, 19, 1 Peter 1, 11, He will guide us into all truth. Not speaking on His own authority, He will tell us of things to come. And in reality, this is exactly what we see over and over and over again as you turn the book from John to the book of Acts, right through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter by chapter. Christ does these things. He provides instruction. He tells people of things to come. He reveals the scripture to them and his truth. Christ directs. He guides. He instructs. The spirit of Christ tells us of things to come. And he prepares the church 
for the issues before them, day by day by day. What a witness of the truth of Scripture. When you talk to somebody who's critical of the Bible, and they're like, well, you know, why do you, why do you read, why do you, you know, just devote your life to the learning and teaching things that are written in the Bible? Well, one of the reasons is because it's the Word of God. Oh, Word of God is so ridiculous. How could you think such a thing? It's written by man, and they love that. You know, it's written by man. Well, yes, it was, by the Holy Spirit. How would, what possible evidence can you bring forth to show that the Bible was not written by men? Well, how about the fact that it accurately portrays the future 100% of the time? Like, for instance, why is there a nation Israel? Well, you know, it was just, you know, those crazy sentimental guys at the League of Nations, and then when they changed their mind, they handed it over to the UN and the Brits, and then when they changed their minds, the Americans got behind it, and it just kind of happened. Hey, even... A huge percentage of the Orthodox Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, did not want the creation of the nation Israel. They wanted God to do it. They didn't want people to do it. And yet we have a nation Israel. And yet biblical prophecy is coming into focus. Folks, at some time in the near future, they're going to build a temple on that mountain. It's going to happen. Talk to me about the Bible, will you? It's the truth. Now, I think about... God revealing before us the things that are going to be happening, how the Holy Spirit reveals events. I was thinking this morning about uh, Brother Andrew, guy who was deeply involved in smuggling Bibles into Eastern Europe uh, back in the 50s, and, and uh, uh, especially in the 50s, I think, probably. Uh, he gives an account in, in his God Smuggler, his book where... He, the Lord had given him a Volkswagen, and he had a Volkswagen, and he had all these Bibles under the hood, and the hood on a Volkswagen is in front. And so he's cruising up to the border to go into East Germany, and there's a huge line of cars, and they're taking seats out of cars and tearing cars apart and everything. He's like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And the Lord speaks to him and says, take all the Bibles out of the trunk and put them in the back seat. And he's like, well, that's ridiculous. That and the Lord told him and told him and finally said, "Fine." He's in line. He gets out. He's taking boxes of Bibles out of the, putting them in the back seat. You know, right? Hi, how you doing? And putting them in the back. And he gets up to the front. They open up the hood. They tear the whole thing apart. There's not much to tear apart in a Volkswagen, but they take it all apart and they say, put it all back together. Okay, go ahead. He drives right through. Bibles in the back seat. God knows. God knows stuff. People, listen to him. He will tell you. Equally. As important as the Holy Spirit directing us, he directs us to Jesus. Not, not simply about things that are going to happen or issues in our own lives, but he directs us to Jesus, to the words of Jesus, to an understanding of his presence with us. In verse 14, he says, he will glorify me. He will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. Even before we were believers, it was the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit that drew us to him through those bizarre circumstances that made you stop and consider, what if the Bible were the Word of God? What if Jesus really was God and he came to earth? What if all this is, is true? John six forty four, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. And what are these things that he will take of the fathers and declare to us? Nothing less than his very word. The absolute reliability of the scripture is indispensable 
Because God's word is true and we can have confidence in it always and without exception. You know, we talk at this church. Occasionally, you will hear disparaging words about what we call the emergent church. A modern movement in the church that takes all kinds of different forms. And one of the major problems, not the only one, unfortunately, is that the modern church is involved in redefining the scripture. Okay, with things, for instance, like neo-orthodoxy. Okay, neo-orthodoxy means simply this. Is the Bible the word of God? The word of God is in the Bible. That's not the same as the Bible is the word of God. If you're telling me that the word of God is in the Bible, you're telling me, well, it's in there somewhere. Well, who gets to decide what is the word of God and what isn't? Okay, do you understand that? Distinction, uh, for instance, old earth, old earth people, and you won't get that here either. People who believe that um, the world is six billion years old or whatever. Uh, people who believe that the first six days of creation were not six literal days, but epochs of time in which God did all these different things. Will they go to hell for that? Is that the unpardonable sin to believe that the earth is old? No, it's not. You believe there are geological epochs and everything. That's not going to send you to hell. But I'll tell you what it will do to you. What it will do is it will communicate very clearly and very powerfully to you that what the Bible says is not what it means. If what it, if it, if what it says in the first two chapters of Genesis is not what it means, well then why should I look over here in the book of Ephesians and assume the directions for how I should lead my life are exactly what it seems. What, what the problem is, is that when you no longer believe that what the Bible says is exactly and powerfully what it means, then when your life is in a mess and you're having a problem and you need help, are you going to go to the Bible? Not likely. You're going to look for some person that seems to be reliable, somebody with not so much hair who's on television every day, who can give you advice about what your family needs to do and direct you and help you out, or somebody who's a doctor, wears a white coat, and speaks with authority. Well, you know, somebody on a commercial or something, and you're going to listen to them. Instead of going to God himself, to his word, getting on your knees and praying and asking for the Lord's wisdom, because his word is the truth that we need. Absolutely. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 21 says, Your ears shall hear the word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right hand or to the left. The scripture is inerrant and infallible, a record of God's purpose, and at the same time, a systematic checklist for the greatest possible benefit that we can have. In verses 16 through 22, it is a completely accurate indicator of future events. Completely accurate. Isaiah 46, 9 says, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. I hear the people in the world talk all the time about political things. Mostly they talk about a formula for world peace, two-nation solution in Israel, monetary answer for the world economy. I really do feel bad for them, honestly. And I don't laugh at them or find it amusing. I feel bad because they're really trying. They don't have any idea what's coming. They really do not. 
Do I enjoy that? Am I a hater? Not at all. Let me tell you, I would love nothing more than to see my grandchildren grow up and grow old in a peaceful world, but it is not going to happen. Clearly and plainly, we are on borrowed time today. You want to know what's coming? Read the Word of God. Verse 16 says, A little while and you will not see me. Again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. You will see me. You will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not understand what he's saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourself about what I said? A little while you will not see me again. A little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being is born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice And your joy, no one will take from you. When you read this, you you understand exactly what Jesus is speaking about. It makes perfect sense to you. Because you know the whole story. You know he's going to die. You know he's going to rise. You know they're going to be sorry and they're going to be fine. You know all the details. But verses 16 to 19 are, I think, a perfect example of a situation the disciples of Jesus dealt with all the time. Where they had absolutely no idea in the world what he was talking about. At the same time, they were intimidated to ask him. I mean, let's face it. Jesus didn't always answer questions all that straightforwardly. You might get an analogy or a parable. Or you, you might get another question. And nobody, want, you know, walking out of the city in the dark, and nobody wanted to jump up to the front and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And so they were intimidated. Another great example of the apostles not understanding If you look at John chapter 11, verses 7 through 16, Jesus talking to the disciples about the death of Lazarus. And it's like Jesus and the disciples are having two separate conversations that don't connect anywhere. They're really not understanding. They're not understanding him at all. Um, I'm not sure they they ever really understood in that situation. It's easy to read this superficially and to say, well, what's the problem? Why don't they get it? The thing is, folks, you have to put yourself in the position of these men. You have to think about what are they thinking? What are they feeling? Is there, they're hearing this stuff. They're a little bit freaked out. Um, you really have to invest yourself into the scripture as you read it to examine the things that are written, to ask yourself some questions about what's there and to see if you truly understand the intent of the passage, uh, to think that uh, that goes for things that are obvious, also for things that are not. It's hugely important. It's central to our hearing from the Lord in the Bible. I have, sitting on my desk, a uh, chart on how to read the Bible in 90 days. Personally, I think it's a recipe for frustration. Uh, I think it's a good idea that every once in a while you should read through an entire book of the Bible in a single sitting. You know, it's a little bit tough to do with Isaiah or Genesis or Ezekiel or or Psalms. Wow. Um, But for the most part... When I read the Bible, I am spending time with God. I am looking for information, but I'm also looking for inspiration. I don't want to be in a hurry. And, and I'm, 
when I'm spending time with God. I am in a hurry way too often anyway. For me to read the whole of Scripture in 90 days, I'm not going to get it done. I wouldn't, I mean, I'll be trying to catch up the whole time and then I'll be reading just to read. You know, you have this idea in your head, I have to read this many chapters a day, get through it, get, you gotta talk to God. You have to listen to the Lord. You have to read 20 chapters a day. You spend time with God. You get with Him. Be with Him. Listen to Him. That's the purpose. It's not for you to, I got through the Bible in a year, I'm a normal Christian now. Amen. God bless you. Disclaimer. Now, if you've been doing this through the Bible in 90 days program and the Lord is really blessing you with it, keep it up. Good for you. You're smarter than me. Amen. That's probably not all that uncommon. Um, I can't do it. I can't do that. Part of investing yourself into the scripture is being sensitive to the Lord's leading, how to go about it, seeking the Lord in scripture and prayer, in fellowship with the body of Christ. Ask God to direct your thinking. Sincerely, go to God, get on your knees, God, tell me how to deal with this thing, and then do what you think. Ask him to direct your thinking. Good place to start. Here Jesus understands that they're having a hard time with what he said in verse 16. And so they weren't getting it. So what does he say? Listen to verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she's in labor, because her hour has come, she has sorrow. As soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being is born in the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but you will. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one, your, no one will take your joy from you. Do you think that made it any clearer to them? Personally, I don't. I think, I don't think any of them had a clue until after the resurrection. But look at what he says, please. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world rejoice. True. The death of Christ, the world is having a party. God, who came to the world in human flesh, is now dead and gone. We are free to go our own way again. There was rejoicing in the world. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. True. That's exactly what happened. They were unbelievably sorrowful. There's got to be a better word than sorrowful. They were, they could, it could not have possibly been worse. He gives the analogy of a parable of a woman in childbirth in 21. A woman in labor has sorrow. And as soon as the child's born, she no longer remembers it. And then think about what he says in verse 22. I think this is the best, it's amazing description. Jesus says, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice for, and your joy no one will take from you. Notice he says, your heart will rejoice. Like, okay, you're sorrowful, things are bad. Things are like horrifically bad, unbelievably bad. And then when you see Jesus alive, your heart will rejoice. Meaning from the deepest part inside of you, you're gonna, everything in your life is going to change in a moment of time. Everything in your life is going to change. When will they see him? After the resurrection. Think about that, folks. What must it be like to lose a person that you are so close to? These people, these guys, they would follow Jesus anywhere. They would follow Jesus anywhere. They were, I, I truly believe these men were absolutely prepared to give their lives for him. They really were. They would have done anything for him. And then to see him, he didn't just die. It wasn't just that he died. 
He was horrifically and violently murdered right in front of them. There is a, there's an element of shock involved in that. These guys were shocked. They were emotionally destroyed and devastated. And then when, when you're trying to figure out how you're going to keep going and what on earth your life is going to look like, he's alive. And he's not just alive, alive. He's really alive. He's like, nobody can kill him anymore. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> you know, he's, it kind of makes the whole rest of the world irrelevant. It's like, pretty amazing. There has got to be a better word than rejoice. He says, no one will take your joy from you. Nobody. Nobody's going to take your joy from you. Why? How can anything in this world would interfere with the joy of seeing Jesus alive from the dead? The world is irrelevant. Seeing the scripture means understanding that it is a completely accurate indicator of future events and having by his spirit the ability to take it in, to assimilate that truth. In verses 23 through 27, seeing the scripture is the foremost earthly authority to direct human conduct and worship. Verse 23 says, And in that day you will ask me nothing, for assuredly I say to you that whatever you ask, my Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day you will ask in my name, I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. It's true. When Jesus shows up in the upper room after the resurrection, they are not asking a lot of questions. He is all the answers that they need. (laughs) Why do we have so many questions? Could it be that we're not seeing Jesus raised from the dead the same way that they did? Could be. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. You don't ask in a person's name when they're standing there. But you know, when the Lord answers a prayer, it is amazing. Even the little things. You know, uh, Halloween night, we were here in Parking's Tough. A couple pulled up. I remember them because they had a, a pit bull puppy dressed like Princess Leia. And, and they, so it's, the moment they turned the corner, somebody pulled out from in front of the church and they parked right in there. And the guy was just ecstatic. He was like, I can't believe it. Every time I pray for a parking space, God answers how wonderful it is. Now, what does this tell us? God is really concerned for parking? No. We are important to God. How important? How important are you to God? Let me guarantee you, you are much, much more important to God than you could ever, ever imagine. I know you're not going to get that, but it's true. You are much more important to him than you could ever imagine. Verse 25, he says, These things I've spoken to you in figurative language. Time is coming. I will no longer speak in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. And in that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will pray the Father. The Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came forth from God. Why is he speaking in figurative language? Remember verse 12. I have many things to tell you. You cannot bear them now. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 25. point he's making here is that you and I have access to the Father. The Father loves us because we believe in Christ. And this is the plan. That we should pray in the name of Jesus. But even more, 
Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came forth from God. This is the bigger deal, folks. Bigger than we can understand. It is the desire of the ages going to the Father in Jesus' name. The time when the Spirit will make things clear to them. The time in the Father's purpose. Isaiah 61, verse 3. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That they may be called the trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. If that's not about the apostles, I don't know what is. Seeing the scripture as the foremost earthly authority to direct human conduct and therefore worship. Finally, in verses 28 through 33, seeing the scripture as the mechanism, as God's instrument, the structure that he's provided by his spirit to bring about this relationship that you and I cannot live without. A relationship, connection between two people that operates on the basis of benevolence and and loving interaction toward a common objective. I have a relationship with my wife. Our objective is called happy family. That's what we do. Now, there are a lot of other little objectives along the way, thing that makes it work, having that common goal and recognizing what makes it possible. I have a relationship with the Lord. It's called kingdom come or heaven. Verse 28, I came forth from the Father. I have come into the world Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. Have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, now has come. That you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone. Because the Father is with me. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Everywhere I go, and in everything I do, I'm trying to watch and listen for the Lord's direction. God's nature is that He communicates, it's it's what He does, it's His nature. I want to be listening, I don't want to miss a thing. Verses 29 and 30, his disciples are really excited that they're getting it. <clears throat> now, now you're speaking plainly, using no figure of speech. Now we are sure you know all things. You have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you, you came forth from God. That's awesome. That's great. Good thing. However, folks, when we're getting it, we're still not getting all of it. There's more out there to be got. One of the reasons that we live on this planet for so long. I mean, you can read the scripture over and over and get something different every time you read it. And yes, that's how it's supposed to work. In verse 31, Jesus answered and said, do you now believe? Good. That's good. I'm glad. Okay, let's turn up the heat a little bit. Indeed, the hour is coming and now has come when you will all be scattered, each to his own, and you will leave me alone. And yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. They can't imagine this. They cannot imagine abandoning Jesus. Back in in John chapter 11, Thomas suggests that they all go to Judea, where the religious leaders have been already trying to kill Jesus, so that they may die with him. These guys are all prepared to die with Jesus. But it's not going to go that way, is it? 
Jesus is going to be alone, even to the point that he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a dark day. But it is also a necessary evil. And it is absolutely necessary. As Jesus concludes this conversation, he presents them with another purpose for these words and and a promise after that. Verse 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Of course, he started with a different purpose. These things I've spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. And now the purpose is peace. And they're related. Not stumbling and having peace are related issues. You think there's a way to estimate the relative importance of peace? Peace is a pretty good thing to have. I mean, seriously, if you have peace and everything else in your life is in the blender, you're okay. I mean, if you have peace from God, basically, uh, the only place that peace comes from is from God. And if God is okay with me, even if my hair is on fire, I am fine. If he's okay, I'm okay. I'll I'll put it out, I'll go to the doctor, I'll have a bandage, whatever. I'm fine. My relationship with Jesus demands... That I take these words, all of these words, and I apply and attach them to myself. I make them part of myself. It demands it. These words are for believers. I am a believer. This is mine. I want to take ownership. I want to own every single word. I want it in the back of my mind every hour. I want it to be the soundtrack to my life, one breath at a time. Beyond the hope of peace... He leaves us a promise at the end of 33. In this world, you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, you might not think of this as a promise. Promises are not always good. This is a promise of perspective, like telling the disciples what was coming before they could understand it. He's telling us what's up. Be prepared. This world is not your home. Do not try to make this world your home. Attaching yourself to this world, and if you do so, you will go down in flames. You can be of good cheer because he has overcome the world. Notice, please, here, at the time that he says this, he has a good deal of overcoming yet to do, doesn't he? Like the lion's share. Just as you and I have a good deal of overcoming yet to do. You know. Um, But that's okay. I can't control that. I have no control. God's God's in control. I mean, I, I may know exactly. May not know what the future holds. I have to know the one who holds my future. Romans, Romans 8, 28, the scripture we cling to. We all know that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But what exactly does that benefit you? And the answer is absolutely nothing unless 
you are securely attached to the person of Jesus Christ. Because he's the one who overcame the world. And I am with him. That's my line from here on. I'm with him. God help us. We are with him no matter what. And don't you think that's really what the disciples were saying? Okay, we're we're with you. Whatever the case, we're with you. Seeing the scripture as it addresses the situation of our lives directly and intimately with real compassion. The scripture is an inerrant and infallible record of God's purpose and at the same time, a checklist for our greatest benefit. The scripture is a completely accurate indicator for future events. It is the foremost earthly authority to direct human conduct and also worship. The scripture is the mechanism and instrument and structure God's spirit uses to bring about the relationship the relationship that you and I cannot live without. God help us. Just, you know, in the dark, walking out of the city, kind of offhandedly to the 11 guys following him. No notes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace upon our lives, for your favor towards us, And, Lord, we do believe that you do have favor upon us, Lord. As we're sitting here today, clothed and sane, Lord, you have been good to us. Father, strengthen our hearts. I know today, Lord, there are many here who are struggling with issues. And, Father, we need your wisdom and input. We need to know what to do and, Lord, how to follow you best. Father, give us wisdom. Direct us by your word, by your Holy Spirit in the scripture as we seek you in prayer. Let your Holy Spirit speak to us, Lord. Give us wise counsel. Surround us with people who truly love you. And Father, those who are inclined to seek your favor. As we're all in prayer this morning, every head bowed. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we would love to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ, to surrender yourself into his hands. If the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart today and you have a desire to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, I am going to pray a prayer. And if if it is your desire to, to be a believer in Christ, you can repeat this prayer after me and the Lord will hear your voice and he will work in your life. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Jesus died for me on the cross. And I believe he rose from the dead. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, change my life. Save me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, we would love to talk to you. My brother Steve and his wife Amy would love to talk to you and share with you, answer any questions you might have, give you a brand new Bible and send you on your merry way. You don't have to join Calvary Chapel of Pasadena. You belong to Jesus. But if you want to come to church here, we're more than happy to have you around. The Lord bless you guys today. Keep Pastor Rick's in prayer. He's doing well, but uh, the Lord would bless his appointment on Monday. And... uh, be wise. Let the Lord direct you this coming week, the opportunities before you. Pray. 
Say, Lord, you know, folks, we don't have that many days left. We need wisdom to honor the Lord with what we do. Don't forget your kids. If you need prayer for anything, I'll be up here in front. Thank you.